It's December 29th, 2013, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is called Off the Chain. So, we've had an eventful time. 20 Holy Ghost-filled, supernatural, faith-walking believers went into Mexico and came back from Mexico safe and sound. We went to build the roof. We went to heal families. We went to heal people physically, and we went to preach the gospel and even feed some children. And Jesus accomplished everything we went to do. It rained on us. There was mud up to our knees. We had to drive all over the place to find our materials. We ran short on materials. Went back to the businesses after they closed. Found men drunk in the back and talked those drunk men into reopening their store and selling us the rest of our materials. On the way back at about 50 miles an hour, our driver's side front tire decided we were driving too slow and it passed us up. There were sparks and glory followed by flashing lights and tow trucks. While we were in Matamoros, our brothers were notified that nobody should be in Matamoros. The city was locked down. When we went to buy steel, there had been a shooting there just prior. When we drove down the main street to deliver our materials to the job sites, the Federales were responding to a shooting. And a dear loved friend sent a video of the gunfire while we were in Mexico that we neither saw nor heard. Ignorance is bliss. So, of the 20 of us, 15 got a whopping 60 minutes of sleep. Five of us were granted the privilege of not being delayed by such comforts. But the highlight of the week for this tired, bald, fat, old pastor was listening to the brothers and the sisters share the word that was on their heart. And I want to share with you all 20 of them, but I can't. So I picked two of them that I'm going to expound upon this morning. One of them came from Brother Treister, and it blessed me to the point where I could wear the same socks for three days and it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> the other came from Brother Jacob Braun, and it blessed me to the point where a few days without a shave is not as irritating as it used to be. God is good, friends. He is so good. Come on now, how good is our God? I cannot say the words off the chain without acknowledging Brother Curtis is with us today. Very often, I have been working with my brother, said something that he found mildly amusing, somewhat delightful. In some way, it pleased Curtis, and Curtis looked over at me and he said, that's off the chain, Pastor. 
And off the chain has captured my soul this morning. Because this Christian life is off the chain. We were not built to live within the limits of ordinary life. We were not built to cower as regular human beings. The Spirit of Almighty God enters what used to simply be earthly and has caused us to be supernatural. So it may not be necessary that you eat. It may not be necessary that you sleep. And apparently Michael Hutchinson can roof all day and all night. Our king knows no limits. And the quicker we get that into our spirit, the faster we begin to accept the fact that our limits are not his limits, all of the sudden you become a new people. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. Pick up with me in the second chapter and the first verse. You then, my son... Be strong. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm going to be strong today. I was weak before I got here, but I'm going to be strong today. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. A great deal of the gospel proclamation has to do with one man having received something, modeling it, demonstrating it, delegating it, entrusting it to another man who will do the very same. And in this way, the gospel has gone from the sands of Judea around the world even to us 2,000 years later, from one generation to the next. Oh, friends... Don't let anyone steal your witness. Be strong. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Number one, saints, there's going to be hardship. It's everywhere. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But it's only a few who are going to be saved. I didn't say that. Jesus did. The thing about a soldier that Paul notes here that is so impressive, he has but one concern. What did his commanding officer tell him to do? I want to tell you, saints, that you stand at point A and point B is where he's told you you need to go. And not another thing in this world matters. Every other thing is a distraction. The enemy will cause as many distractions as he thinks it takes to get you off course. But in the name of Jesus, I cannot be bought away. I cannot be seduced away. I cannot be intimidated away. I will not back up, let up, or shut up until I have got where God said to go. Is that your heart this morning, church? Well, then we're going to have a year that is off the chain. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The only reason that an athlete would compete would be to win. 
If you have ever trained for something, striven for something, hurt for something, it's because you hope to win. In Christ, we are declared victors as long as we endure. I want to win. I want to win, saints. I'm not satisfied with a few people I know inheriting the kingdom. I'm not satisfied with some of the children being fed. I'm not satisfied with some of the world knowing about the good things that we know about. I want to win in the name of Jesus. I believe this can be done starting with the lives in front of you, branching out to the families in front of them, and touching the nations through them. We're going to eat this elephant one bite at a time. And what started in a tiny little garage actually started in the heart of a teenage boy has now grown to something more because that's what the kingdom does. And he will do the very same in you. What you have may be a small start, but praise God, you're not through yet. The kingdom grows. Compete for it. Fight for it. Get that victor's crown. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. The whole point of sowing seed, the whole point of plowing ground, the whole point of farming is that something would be harvested at the end. I don't want a life that's futile. I don't want to look back and have spun my wheels. I don't want to waste a year, and I certainly don't want to waste decades or scores of years. What if somebody could tell you that they had perfect seed, that they had prepared perfect soil, that they themselves controlled the very sun that gave the plant nutrients and caused rain to fall from the heavens? If they could demonstrate that, would you listen to them? Because that's exactly who our king is. He controls it all. You want a harvest? It comes by heeding his voice. Reflect on what I'm saying for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Don't you love how much the Apostle Paul trusted his friend? No commentaries, no extra. He simply says what he meant to say and said, God will help you understand it. That's trust, friends. You know why? He knew the kingdom was in him. The kingdom is not a matter of our careful argument. The Lord demonstrates his power in the lives of those who are in the kingdom. He brings you revelation. He brings you chain-breaking power. He brings you into his will because it's his desire to do so. You don't need more academic accolades. You don't need to have the highest IQ in the room. You need to be wholly dependent upon the God that designed you for the holy purpose for which he designed you. Somebody say amen. amen. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. What's that next phrase? But God's word is not changed. Friends, Brother Treaster brought a word in Mexico. He said, I passed chain link fences to get here. 
I crossed in front of soldiers with guns to get here. For men, they can be chained, but the Word of God is off the chain. The Word of God is beyond limits. Now, let me ask you something. Do you want to live a life on the devil's tether? Do you want to be on his little short leash? When he jerks, you say, yes, sir. Where do you want me to go? Does he have you in a choker chain? Because when God unchains his saints with his unchained word, it is devastating. I had a lot of time to think about this word. We left Mexico at 7 in the evening, and I didn't arrive here till 7 this morning. And we were, we were blessed with a good 3.2-mile walk to an IHOP, searching for an ATM machine on foot. It's been an eventful night and day. And I thought about a scene that I had seen in 2008. And I wanted to show you that. Is that okay? Is it better to be feared or respected? And I say, is it too much to ask for both? With that in mind, I humbly present the crown jewel of Stark Industries Freedom Line. It's the first missile system to incorporate our proprietary repulsor technology. They say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how Dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. Find an excuse to let one of these off the chain, and I personally guarantee you the bad guys won't even want to come out of their caves. Your consideration, the Jericho. Oh my goodness, let one of these off the chain and you won't even have to worry about the bad guys. Saints, when the people of God unchain themselves from the world, when we're as unchained and as free as the word of God is, you won't even have to worry about the bad guys because one man filled with the Spirit of God is more than a match for a nation that has turned their back on him. One man filled with the Spirit of God has no problem chasing a legion of demons and putting them in pigs if he so chooses. One man filled with the Spirit of God can be the bondage-breaking turning force. And we asked you during worship whether you wanted to rise up and become an army. Now we get to decide whether that's lip service, religious speak, or whether you're serious about it. God is bigger than our circumstances. He's been proving that in our lives since we were scared teenagers. He is bigger than our limitations, and His Word cannot be chained. Let us listen to this trustworthy saying. He said, For which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
Since God's word cannot be bound, we endure everything. There is no mountain that is too high and no valley that is too deep because the love of God compels us. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. What an interesting thing to say in an age of prosperity confessions, in an age of the bless me gospel, in the age of if it feels good, then preach it. The very first thing that he reminds this young worker in the faith is if we died with him, we will also live with him. Is your life still your own or have you pledged it to our master? And if you have pledged it to our master then how dare you protect it against him? One of the young ladies on the trip who we love very much stumbled upon Psalm 116, where it says, How precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we got a chance to discourse about that verse. Oh, I love missions trips. When you can get out of the church building and be the church outside the walls, This is where all real learning takes place. It's where all real action is. And it is that way because you were never made to sit and soak. You were made to be filled with this power and put to work. Shame upon the institutions that have robbed you of the opportunity to work for the Lord by telling you to sit and listen to a sage on a stage. We have no clerical colors here, no pontifical hat. We're not exalted above you because we want to work alongside you. And we are begging that you would take serious the call of God to raise up as an army because there are too few doing too much. When we stop protecting our lives, when you lay it all down just like we sing and worship, miracles begin to happen. If we endure, we will also reign with him. What do you have to do to reign You have to endure. That doesn't sound like a part-time Christian. That doesn't sound like somebody who's so shackled to sin that you couldn't identify him as a Christian. It sounds like somebody who's participating in the kingdom of God. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If you have a commentary that explains that as something other than him disowning you, throw it away. It's a lie. Do you know what this says in the Greek? It says exactly what it says in your English Bible. If you disown him, he will disown you. That's exactly what it says because he said exactly what he meant. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless towards him, he will remain faithful towards his own character for he cannot disown himself. How many of you want to be faithful to the end? How many of you want an unchained life? Oh, man. They're going to write something on a tombstone. Oh, that it would be this one did the will of God. You were designed for a purpose. This year, we spent much of the year looking at what our purposes are. Most of you discovered your purpose this year. That means 2014 ought to be a year of action. A year that the army coalesces and goes to war. You never stop self-discovery, but at some point it becomes selfish. It's time for us to work. Amen. Why don't we do this?
Turn with me to Acts 19. Paul said he was chained, but the word of God wasn't chained. How do you think of Paul then? Let me ask you, have you ever worn a chain? In a metaphorical sense, have you ever worn a chain? Have you ever been in a situation where you repeated an old error that you promised you never would? Did you ever stand in your parents' kitchen and say, when I'm a parent, I will never do that, and then stand in your own kitchen and do exactly what you promised you'd never do? Do you know that it's a sin to lie in church? Come on, look at your neighbor's I'm not going to lie to the pastor. You ever worn a chain, church? <laughs> I've worn more than I would like to count. Some were placed upon me. Others I picked up and placed upon myself. Some problems you dug your own hole and others where a trap you fell into. It makes no difference when you're in the bottom of the hole, does it? You ever spend time theologically wrestling about whether or not God's going to help you because you're not sure whether you're the victim in the scenario or whether or not you simply wandered off and fell in a hole? What difference does it make? If you're in a hole, you need help. There's only one that can give it to you. If you believe he's going to help you, it's hard to be a victim though, isn't it? Saints, Paul said he was wearing chains. So must have been then that he didn't quite accomplish much, huh? If he's wearing chains, must be that he was just a little puppy on a leash. Boy, that doesn't even feel good to say, does it? In Acts 19, the 13th verse, listen to what even the heavenly realm says about our friend Paul. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? I want you to catch this. Paul was dangerous enough to the enemy that the enemy knew his name. He knew him by reputation. Are you a battle axe for the king of kings or have you become a butter knife for religious men? Just make each other feel good, spread a little jam on it and move on. Because this man was an instrument of warfare and the enemy knew his name because he posed a threat. Paul said he was chained. I say he was unchained. I say he's off the chain. I say the word of God dwelled in him so much that God saw fit to have him write two-thirds of the New Testament. If you're chained today, friends, might be that you're unchained tomorrow. God can change your circumstances. Paul so shook up the city of Ephesus they burned their spiritual books. They wasted 50,000 days wages and burned their spiritual books. Somebody say that's off the chain. I'm not going to get into what 50,000 days wages would be. 
But can you imagine that one man with so shaken up Sugarland or so shaken up South Houston that they burned 50,000 days wages of anything? That man was off the chain. I want to be like that. I want to live like that. That's what the word of God is, and it's my highest priority to be exactly like it. What then are the chains? Let's get right down to it. Fear of man's a big one. How many times you've been prompted to prophesy? How many times you've been prompted to witness? How many times have you wanted to pray for somebody, but... Uh, you know, if God really wants me to do it, he'll, he'll tell me again or he'll, he'll confirm it in some kind and, and the moment passes. Okay, I'm going to sit and wait until somebody besides Charlie answers me. All of you are obedient all of the time, huh? Hmm. How about a chain being your desire to sin? How many of us have on Sunday said, Lord, I am so sorry. I feel convicted in your presence. I don't ever want to do that again, Lord. I'm never going to do it again. But you didn't go home and throw away the tools with which you did it. So they're waiting there, calling to you again and again and again. And you're pretty sure that whether it's a day, a week, a month, or a year, you will not keep your spiritual sobriety in that matter. And you've been living like that so long that you've begun to think it's normal. And we've listened to preachers who've said, oh, we're just old sinners saved by grace. Everybody sins. So that we begin to think that since we're all guilty, he'll find us all Innocent. Can you say that's messed up logic? That's bound up logic. That's chained up logic. That's slave mentality, friends. That's a slave to sin. Jesus Christ himself said a man is mastered or is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Peter said it and also Paul said it. It just depends on which holy letter you want to read. The universal testimony of the gospel is that Jesus came to set us free of sin, not teach us to live with a little bit less sin. The king of kings did not die on a cross in a bloody fashion to make bad men better men. He died to take dead men and make them live again. That's off the chain. That's beyond the scope. That's so far outside of reason that it would blow your mind if you really wrapped yourself around it. He came to change your nature. He came to fill you with power. He came to put sin under your feet. So then the question remains, how long do you want to wear a shackle that he's willing to break off of you? If we live in sin, it's because we choose to. It's not because we have to. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, help us. Some of you feel kind of beat up, like you've been criticized all of your life. I heard a testimony this weekend stirred my heart because I understand him a little better now. 
You've been baptized in criticism. You suffer from low self-esteem. You've been wrong all of your life. And so you don't want to be wrong one more day. How many of us were not affirmed? How many of us did not have a heavenly example in an earthly father? How many of us have wrecked our relationships? Like the way one pastor said it, though. His name is Francis Frangipani. To inoculate me from the praise of men, he baptized me in the criticism of men until I died to the control of men. Friends, if you have an addiction to the approval of your peers, it's very hard to do anything for the Lord. It's just one more chain in disguise. If you have an addiction to people liking you and thinking well of you, it's just one more kind of chain, no different than filthy pornography, no different than filthy drug use, because it'll keep you out of the will of God just the same. The church world has an addiction to popularity. So our pastors have to look a certain way. Their wives have to look a certain way. They have to speak a certain way. The auditoriums have to be a certain way. It's consumerism. They're selling a product for you to buy. That is so bound up, that is so chained, that is so entangled, so putrid, so wretched. The Word of God is not like that. It's off the chain. The Word of God will take a person that is buck-toothed, fat, and used to be lazy and turn them into a wrecking ball for Christ. He'll fill him with the Spirit of God. He'll make him a mouthpiece, a trumpet for the kingdom. been beat up by the divides between human beings, the haves and the have-nots. Maybe the color of your skin has been a setback to you. The living God will fill you with his spirit so that all anybody sees about you is you're of the substance of heaven. And if they see something else, they're just not looking hard enough yet. Hmm. One of my favorite questions to ask people is, what is Matthew? I do it in every country I go to. And in almost every country, they claim him until they hear what he has to say. And when he tells them we're all sinners of the same disease stock, but Jesus Christ came to change us into a new species, when he came to make us heavenly men, then all of the sudden... He feels a little different than them, you know, whereas before they all wanted to claim him. Matthew was every man. In Mexico, we say he was a preemie. That's why he looks like he did. In India, we say this is what happens when one stays in there another month. He gets a foot taller than the rest of his nation. In Africa, we say, well, friends... You have to be patient with our light-skinned brothers. Everywhere we go. You know what? There's not much difference between any of us. The real difference is you either have the all-surpassing power of God inside of you or you do not. The rest is window dressing. 
The rest is just window dressing. How about we quit making excuses and we start getting filled with his power? Somebody say amen. Amen. What if I told you that there is a chain upon the feet of most people and God has got a key for it? And on the other side of that chain, after using the key, is nothing but beautiful. How many of you would want to know where the key is? Oh, my goodness, you might climb the Himalayan mountains. You might swim half of the ocean to find the key. You wouldn't have to go any further than Jacob Braun. Sixteen years old with hair like Absalom, comes walking past our church one night. We just bought our sound system, and I was pretty sure he was there to steal it. But I was willing to take a chance. How old are you now, Jacob? Twenty-two. Good Lord, what eight years does. Eight years later, the man can preach and teach about the key. Turn with me to Isaiah 33 and let me teach you what he taught me. Is that fair? Everybody who ever learned anything learned it from somewhere. It's a special gift for a teacher to learn from his students. Here is Isaiah 33 and verse 5. The Lord is exalted... For he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times. Could you use a sure foundation, saints? A rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. What is the store? Salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. What is the key to the treasure of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge? The fear of the Lord. Maybe that's why the Proverbs say what they do. Proverbs 9 and 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Where does it begin, saints? Why do people live with religious speech but are still slaves to sin? They have no fear of God. They think in saying the right things, they've alleviated their burden. I can assure you when he shows up brighter than the sun in the sky, that will not shield you. Earth and sky flee from the King of kings and the Lord of lords glory. The only ones that will stand in his presence are the ones that offered their chains to him now so that he could set them free. Oh, saints, it's so important. See, this is the part where the pastor begins to descend into formula and religion and everybody begins to go, "Ah, I already know all of that. It matters not whether you know it, friends, if we don't do it. (coughs) See, but if we do it, your life begins to be something that cannot be defined in ordinary terms. You're driving down the road and your tires pass you up and not one foul word is uttered in the car. People are smiling, laughing, and praying in the Holy Ghost. It's off the chain. You're standing on a roof, and it's been raining on you two days, and you realize that your many thousands of dollars project just came up an inch short, and you're out of material. 
Not a foul word is uttered, no discouragement, no nastiness. Everybody laughs and says, if there's not blood in the offering, it's not an offering. And you just go spend what is your last dollar. See, the kingdom is outside of the parameters of the world's mind. But it's well within the boundaries of God's mind. He was already off the chain. He's, he's not outside the box. He's, there is a box. I didn't remember that I created that. He's beyond what you can imagine or ask for. How about Proverbs 14, verse 27? The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. What will being fearfully reverent of the Lord do? It becomes in you a fountain of life because it is always directing you in the right way. When a man begins to lose his concern over the condition of his soul, when he becomes eternally secure with his false doctrines wrapped around him like a blanket while living as a pig in that blanket, you become numb to the voice of God. And you become numb because you're pretty sure that he's accepted you no matter what you do. And his grace has become a license for immorality. And you've got perfect doctrine, you think, and a pig's life. You know how I could know something like that? I wore those chains like a parka. I wrapped them around myself and insulated myself and convinced everyone they were my coat of many colors. Won Bible awards but lived like hell and thought I would inherit heaven. It's not going to happen. He loves you, but he does not love you that much. He will not disown himself to accept you. Your life will show whether or not you loved him by the fruit and work product of your life. Say, well, I'm not against him. That's not enough. I don't mind people who do that. I even write a check every now and then. That's not enough. He either has all of your life or you don't have him. He's the pearl of great price. If you still have your life, then you don't have the pearl. You had to give away everything to get the pearl. Look at what you're clinging to and you know what you don't have. Pastor, I thought this was going to be an encouraging message. We could tell you your chains are pretty and send you on your way. We could tell you we like the clinking of your chains. Just drop some coins in the offering box. You know, in the Middle Ages, the church found a wonderful marketing program. They said, when coin in the coffer box rings from purgatory of soul springs. No matter that there was no purgatory and it was simply an extortion scheme for the masses. I mean, people like their delusions, you know, because it means if you could throw a little change at the clerical collar, it meant your loved ones were no longer in hell. Oh, well, that's beneficial, except it's completely and wholly outside of the Bible. And so are some of the incredible scriptural misrepresentations that America has clung to. The Protestant world is not innocent in this regard, not even close. The proof of it is that they live like hell all the way to heaven. You know a tree by its fruit, friends. Are you examining your fruit this morning? Because I want you to have a harvest that would break branches except your branches can't be broken. They're attached to the divine Christ. Proverbs 16, 16. 
Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man... What's it say? So if a man indulges in evil, if a man plunges into evil, what does he not have? If your life's been defined by the number of your backslidings, then you're missing the fear of the Lord. If you can't think of a single year of your life where you didn't spend a considerable portion of that year indulging self rather than serving the Christ, then you lack the fear of the Lord. If you read anything written by the preachers in the 1800s, anything, you find out that they were keenly aware of their own condition. And if you read the literature of this century, you find out we're keenly unaware of our condition. What has happened? A great delusion has come. I mean, a great delusion. Michael, what is the man that you were reading the other day? You played the audio for me in the car? David Brainerd. David Brainerd made me nauseous because he talked about his own sin for the first, I don't know, 100 pages. Took him years to come to grips with Christ. But when he was set free, he knew he was set free. There was such a change in him that nobody could convince him otherwise. The very Spirit of God inside of him bore witness, you are mine, and he wouldn't settle for anything less. He would write all about his religious duty. He'd write about his piety. He would write about all of those things. And then about the time we're getting excited for him because he's so active, he says, but I realized it was all for nothing. They were vain attempts to save myself. I was still captive to my sin. But when Christ set him free from his sin, he worked for the Lord, but his glory was in the power of the Lord over his sin. Boy, we don't hear that. We say our pastors preach about sin. They preach about the world's sin. They don't preach about yours or you find another church. They preach in general terms about sin, but nobody actually expects you to be free from it. In the name of Jesus, the Bible says, be holy even as he is holy. If God says that about you, then I think you can do it. I think I can do it because I think his power is available to break those chains. How serious are you about breaking them? False religion takes the keys that God provides to the storehouse away. Turn with me to Luke. Say there when you're there, we're going to be in Luke 11. <clears throat> Off the chain. First, we're going to look at somebody so bound up in a chain, they didn't know that they were a prisoner. You know, there's all kinds of deception. One kind of deception says, come with me, nothing bad will happen to you. Another kind of deception is you've been living with the enemy so long, you think he's your friend. You know, I grew up with a drunk, and um, I found it amazing, his capacity to self-deceive. And not a particularly wicked guy any more than most wicked guys. I mean, 
They're all pretty wicked. But he could be equally convinced that he was sober enough to drive every evening. Wake up the next morning, not remember the evening, but repeat the same process the next day. We could have fights in my house where a bowl of beans was hurled across a room at somebody's head, left a dent in the refrigerator that the combatants didn't even remember doing it. But they swore the whole time they weren't drunk. You know, this is such a beautiful picture of sin. I mean, a pristine picture of sin. There are levels of deception. One says, hey, just do it this time and it won't hurt you. Another says, you're doing it every day, but not really. I mean, not any more than everybody else. It's, I mean, it's all good. It's not even really sin because it's so common, you know. I mean, it's just the human condition. The church has learned to live with that. And it's breaking the heart of God. You know why? Because you live as less than He intended you to. We could be turning upside down cities. We could be pulling down the altars to foreign gods. We could be such a threat to the imperial powers of the world by virtue of a peaceful earthly march and a warfare heavenly march that the kingdom of God was literally coming upon them and they thought it best to kill all of our leaders. But we're not experiencing that. And it's because we've not sought the Lord's holiness. We like our chains. I want an unchained existence. Are you in Luke 11? Here comes Luke 11, starting in verse 52. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. These were the experts in the law. And it's not enough that their great knowledge actually hid the key to the kingdom. They're hindering other people by spreading their great knowledge. Let's see why. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, friends, is when we confess one thing with our lips, but we live in an entirely different way. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. There is not a thing that is hidden today that he will not reveal in that day. Oh, what if we lived by that standard? I saw written on a wall one time, integrity is what you do when no one is looking. The problem with that statement, friends, is he is always looking. And the whole world will see what was done in private, whether good or bad. It is not simply done away with. Even the body of Christ, according to the book of Corinthians, appears before Jesus and gives an account for things done in the body, whether good or bad. Don't think that it doesn't matter what we do in private. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. 
but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has the power to throw you in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What was his answer to those who had lost the key? He wanted to restore it by saying the first basis for being an expert in the law, for being a religious leader, for being any follower of God is that you fear him more than you fear any other thing. Is that the basis of our doctrine? Is that the basis of your life that you fear God? It's so common to say, first comes the Lord, then comes my family, then comes the country, but does your life reflect that order? Does it? If you had to chart your time, would it reflect what you say your priorities are? When we say, fear the Lord... How concerned were you about your life yesterday? See, it'll make you live differently, not because you're terrified of him, but because you love him so much you don't want to disappoint him. You have an absolute holy reverence for him. You are both scared of his wrath and enthralled with his love all at the same time. He's big enough to have complicated thoughts about If I could just preach just a little bit. Those of you that have been married a little while, who in here has been married more than 10 years? Look at those hands. Don't you dare speak out loud. I don't want to ruin the rest of your year. You ever had that moment where you both loved a man wanted to choke him at the same time? Yeah, no, we're still lying in church, aren't we? You ever had that moment where you are just sure that they're wonderful, but in this moment it seems like they're the... Not wonderful. God is big enough to have complicated thoughts about. And you ought to be terrified when you do wrong. And absolutely be enthralled and filled with hope with what you know about his loving kindness all at the same time. I tell you, Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. He also told them how much he valued them, more than sparrows, more than anything else in the creation. On one hand, he's telling them that they're the most valued of creation. On the other, he's saying, if you disown me, I'll burn you. Do you see how complicated it is? And yet that's also pretty simple, isn't it? He wants pure, undefiled, unadulterated, absolutely loyal, loving devotion. By the way, those of you that have been married more than 10 years, do you want something different from your spouse or or will you allow there to be a little bit disloyalty, a little bit adultery, a little bit defiled, a little bit all of those things? You don't want that. We would give God less than we would give our spouse. You know, I was mostly faithful this year, spouse. Come on now. How well is that going to go over? I I thought, how well is that going to go over? Probably not going to go over all that well, huh? Why would we think God is any different? Okay, so we know what chains look like. 
I'd rather talk about breaking chains. Is that okay? I didn't come here to tell you how to be more chained. I came here to tell you how to break chains. Let's turn to Matthew 6. Say there, when you're there, you're going to need a finger in this place. Are you mad at me? You know, a couple of you came up and said you were looking forward to a fired up word. I have this little sign in my office. It says, was I preaching to you? Of course I was. Who else should I have been preaching to? Saints, that's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? Aren't there enough politician-like puppets standing up telling the masses what they want to hear, masquerading as ministers, but there is no holiness, no conviction, and no power of God. There's just a giant assembly. I don't want to pretend to be the bride of Christ and be wearing so many chains that I can be, in the end, declared nothing but a slavery harlot. I think that he has something so beautiful for us, so amazing for us, that all we need to do is dare to offer him our weaknesses, offer him them, and he will exchange our ashes for something beautiful. I believe that with all of my heart because I've been experiencing it for 20 years. When I think of what I had to offer him when I came to him, violence, Wickedness, hatred for almost everybody that I knew, even the ones that I loved. I've always been complicated. Mostly anger. That's what I had to offer him. And he had mercy on me then. Do I really think that he can't cure me of what's left? Or have I just become comfortable thinking I'm pretty good as I am? See, we're convinced that we're sinners and then we get saved and we decide to live with whatever sin's left over. You've been struggling with something for a decade and hadn't put it underfoot? It's got to be a fear of God problem. What else could it be? How long can we live in unrepentant sin and think He's going to wink at us? We're not even surprised anymore when our pastors run off with their secretaries. We don't think it's shameful anymore when a church doesn't give a half of its percent of gross revenues to missions. We don't even think it's shameful anymore. We don't even ask. We want to know, do they increase offerings every year? Do they increase attendance every year? What kind of programs are there for my children? None of those things are qualifications in the Word. Not at all. Those of you that have been here this year, how many of you started with us in 2013 and have been with us the whole year? Not meaning that this is your first year here, but meaning that you've been here for 12 months. I'm going to ask you just a point-blank question. Have you grown? Are you closer to the Lord now than you were? Are you being challenged? This is the purpose of assembling together. Not sitting around pretending that I'm okay and you're okay, staring at each other's chains. I want you to hear the way in which Jesus says this. It's Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, and when you pray, not if you pray, and when you pray, he's speaking to all of Israel and assuming 
that they already pray. I've noticed through the years that people overestimate the amount of time they pray with the same ratio and proportion that they underestimate the amount of time they watch TV. Oh, just a few minutes in the evening, but you can't name a movie in the last 30 years that they can't quote to you. Just a few minutes a day. Do you pray, brother? Oh, yes, every, every morning and evening. I'm not talking about over meals. Uh, we, we, uh, if we're not connected to our Father, of course we're not going to live an unchained existence. Prayer is meant to connect you. Look at what he says in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. Prayer is that mechanism by which we know what his will is. And it begins to get in our heart in a way that makes us want to do it on the earth. Not if you pray, when you pray. And what is prayer for? It connects your heart to the kingdom so that it's not connected to the world. When we spend hours and hours and hours in entertainment, no wonder our hearts are drawn to the entertainment. If you spend hours in prayer, you know what your heart will be drawn to? Where a man's treasure is, there also is his heart. Didn't Jesus say that? What do you value more than anything else? Your new plasma? They don't even do that anymore, do they? What is it? LED. LED. Do you see how much I value a TV? I don't think I have one that's been made in the last 20 years. If I do, it's because one of you gave it to me. What is it that you value? Do you look forward to getting alone with him and talking to him like you look forward to sneaking off on a date with your loved one when you first met? Do you want to stay up and talk to him at night when everybody else is asleep the way you used to sneak your phone in your, in your bedroom and talk to your loved one till the wee hours of the morning? See, these are the measures that the Bible uses. That's why we're called the bride of Christ and he is, is our groom because that's the kind of love he's looking for. How about 6.16? How about that one? When you fast... Hello. Now, when I say the word fast, please don't think of the way I drive. When I say fast, immediately, do reasons come to your mind that you can't do it? See, I'm on medications. Uh, you know, uh, my blood sugar. Um, you, you, you know, I mean... It's as many excuses as there are. It's probably as many belly buttons as in this room. But how did Jesus say it? When you fast. Speaking of Mario Salinas, the first thing he said to me this trip was that he felt like he was out of the will of God because he had not fasted and sought his will enough. Which is ironic because he fasts and seeks the will of God all of the time. Of course, he doesn't have very much. He can't afford to be out of the will of God for a few minutes. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're not poor enough to be rich in faith and understand prayer the way the third world understands prayer. So I don't know, Pastor, I'm pretty poor. Well, how much time did you spend praying? That'll tell you how poor you are or are not. 
Because my friends in India, if they don't pray until they've heard from God, then they don't think they're going to get to eat. So they pray until he tells them that food's coming. When you fast. And what is the point of fasting? But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Is God just interested in your hunger strike? Fasting in this time was synonymous with repentance. It was synonymous with holiness. The reason that you fasted was to have an introspective time where nothing was being indulged in your whole point. I think it's hilarious. We do fast from carbs. No, that's a diet, friends. That's, that's not a fast. We do fast from, you know, something we like. We picked this up from the Catholic Church in Lent. And it's as ridiculous as the stuff you scrape out of the dryer. Do you know what a fast was in the Bible? A fast. No food. You spent time seeking the Lord without any distraction. And why? It was so that you could get your heart right. You could repent. And that when you got up from the fast, you knew you were in right standing with Him. You walked in holiness. The reason to prayer was to connect you to the kingdom, the heart of the kingdom. The reason to fast was so that you would always be repenting and it would show up in holiness. And it wasn't an if, it was a when. How about this one? <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell you, huh? You done with me? Caitlin, are you done? This is the one that everybody gets mad about. You're fine with me preaching about money as long as it's coming to you. And pastors are fine preaching about money as long as it's coming to them. <coughs> what does Jesus say in this verse, though? 6-2. So when you give to the needy. When you give to the needy. Not when you give to the church. Not when you give to the missions board. When you give to the... Needy. Every single believer, every single one already had an obligation to the religious uh, hierarchy that God built. They already had an obligation to Judaism at large. The early church had an obligation to the expansion of the gospel that did not alleviate their obligation to their fellow man on a personal, individual level every day. Can I tell you how much I love our missions team? We raised $3,800 to go to Mexico. We probably needed five grand, but we stretched that $3,800 and we did 10 grand worth of work with it. And we pigeonholed a hundred bucks. We pigeonholed that hundred bucks because it was a little girl's birthday. And she's lived in a room that is 10 by 14 her entire life and never had her own bed. And we wanted her to have something nice for her birthday. So out of $3,800, this was the $100 set aside for them when we go home with nothing. That's always our goal. One of the brothers just couldn't live with that. And after sacrificially giving to the project, like you give to a church on a personal level, he looked at that family and he had sacrificially stashed something, stashed something just for them. I didn't ask him to. I didn't take up an offering. It wasn't a group effort. It was a man who felt a personal obligation to be the Lord's hands and feet and not just through an institution. 
See, pastors are scared if they tell you that, you'll forget that you have an obligation to the church body. They're so greedy for what they'll get from you. They're so scared and controlled by fear of loss of finance that they would never tell you that you have a personal obligation to the poor. They say your only obligation is to the church. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Oh, y'all are all going to hate me because I say you have that obligation and you have a personal obligation. We don't take from what is the Lord's to do what we want with it. We give to the Lord what is His and then what's left over is ours to give to someone else. That's not taught, is it? And He doesn't say if. He says, so when you give to the needy. And if you do it to be honored by men... I was contacted by somebody on Facebook. The elders warned me. Shouldn't even respond to it. Too late. I already did. It's okay, though. They defriended me. It's funny how people don't like you to tell the truth. And every hour of the day, they're posting themselves doing kind things. Well, they get their reward in full right there. And I can tell you, after a decade of experience with them, that's where their motivation is. Saints, I'm talking about how to break chains. Let's see if we can bring it home for you. When you pray, when you fast, when you give alms to the poor, what do those three things have to do with? Prayer has to do with keeping you connected to the heart of God. What does fasting have to do with? Repentance and holiness constantly staying in the mainstream of what God is doing so that it can help you. Alms to the poor. This is a sacrifice for our Father's eyes only. If your brother sees it, that was never your motivation. You so fear and so love the Lord that you want to catch his heart and his attention. You want him to see that you care what he cares about. You want him to see that that little girl in Mexico's birthday has become as important to you as it is him. You look for the chance to sacrifice in a way that hurts for him. I've been told by all my pastor friends that I am the worst at taking up an offering. I concede it. You know why? We don't take one up at all. They tell me I'm stupid. And I listen to them, and boy, they can accentuate that. It's a skill. It is. They squeeze pennies and turn them into dollars. I, I, I watch them do it. And they're men of God. It's just how their ministries operate. I have no desire to. I feel like if you're connected to the Father, if you, if you have a kingdom heart, if you're in a constant state of repentance, getting your holiness right, you'll have the desires He has. You're pretty sure that He wants life-changing ministries to exist? I shouldn't have to convince you. <laughs> I mean, it really is that simple. It's unnerving to the people around me sometimes, and I don't blame them. I'm unnerved with myself too. I don't like myself either. I think I should do it different. I just don't know any other way to do it. I trust you. I trust you to be filled with the presence of God. I trust you to want to be free from chains. This led me to thinking about a couple guys. I want to do something unusual. I want to put a scripture on the screen while you turn to a different scripture. The scripture on the screen would be 1 Chronicles 21, 24. And then would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 23. 
I want to tell you a principle that I shared with my friends in Mexico. And I didn't intend to share it with you, but they're my friends. And seem to let them understand me a little better, my heart a little better, and so now I want to share it with you. Is that okay? I don't believe in distant relationships. You might even be frustrated with me because I get all up in your business. I can't help it. I walked in this morning and Curtis was in his bathrobe still cooking. I thought that was awesome. He's only lacking a pipe. This passage grips my heart. Not the one your Bible's open to, the one that's on the screen. Then we're going to teach about the other one. See, David, he came to Aruna and he said, Aruna, I want your threshing floor. Aruna said, by all means, take it. It's yours. David said, no, I want to pay you full price. Aruna said, mm, no. David said, look, I'm going to build something, an altar for the Lord here. And I want to pay you full price. He said, David, you can have it, and I'll even give you oxen to sacrifice on that spot. Every Christian I know except a handful would say, what a blessing. What a blessing. Everything I needed for what I wanted to do for the Lord has been provided. David was offended at the thought says, but King David replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you the the full price. That's off the chain. The rest of the world won't do that. They're too busy counting links and seeing how far they can go. But when you don't have a chain, you're free to do anything God tells you to do. You're not at all worried about the limited resources. You're not at all worried about what you can and can't do. You're simply worried about what he said to do. No, I insist on paying you the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering. What's that say? What does Christianity cost you? We've been hearing our whole lives that salvation is a free gift. We've been told our whole lives that it's just given and it's free. God's complicated. He does give it to you and it costs you everything. If your salvation cost you nothing, then how did you give up your life to get that pearl of great price. We like our simple little bumper sticker kind of slogans. We like things to be in neat little categories and God is full of complexity and mystery and he wants you to search out his heart. That's why it might be necessary to pray more than just over your food. It might be necessary to fast more than just however often the average American Christian is fasting. Bet we fast more for medical reasons. I bet more people have declared a fast because the doctor was going to do a barium enema (laughs) than they have fasted because they thought the Spirit of God said so. It's a hilarious thing when the Spirit of God says so. We can't, and we can't for all these reasons. The mighty MD, the little minor deity in his white lab coat, he tells you to, and it's, yes, sir, I have to, the doctor said. How interesting, huh? Christianity has to cost you something because where you invest your heart and your time, where there's adversity that you overcome, that's where your treasure is. I'm not disappointed it was hard to build the roof. I'm not disappointed my tire flew off. I love that truck, but I'm not. 
I'm not disappointed that we had to walk to IHOP or that my wife got in a car after two hours sleep, drove to Corpus Christi, picked us up and drove back and came to church without sleeping. I'm not disappointed because that's my offering to the Lord. You say, what can he do with that? I mean, you can't spend it. You can't eat it. He never needed any of those so he don't get hungry. He needed a heart that was sold out for it. And that's all I have to give him. And I'm pleased. It's my pearl. I could whine and complain, and I'm tempted to. I could get mad and blame. Uh, Judah, did you turn that last screw or did I? You know, we could do all of those things. But then there'd be no offering to the Lord. I want to bring him an offering. And it's okay that it costs something. That makes it worthwhile. Can you say amen? amen? Can I talk to you about three guys that had prayer, fasting, and alms to the poor in principle. They had it down. Their offerings cost something. And this is our path to success here. This is in 2 Samuel 23. 23, starting in verse 8. Joshua, Bashabeth, a Tekamite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Anybody ever seen an MMA match? Two men try to kill each other for five five-minute rounds and they don't succeed. One man took on 800 men and slaughtered them. How does something like that happen? Jashev's name means he who sits in the council of God. Does that sound like a man whose life is shaped around prayer? Apparently, Jashev, he who sits in the council of God, was connected to the Father's heart, and he knew what needed to be done, so the Father helped him do it. Come on now. A mighty man. Why? Because he had God's counsel. How about verse 9? You LSU fans are not going to like this. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when he taunted the Philistines gathered. You LSU fans, I have to wait one more verse. Sorry, one more guy. At past Demim for battle. Then the men of LSU retreated. No, the men of Israel retreated. I got verse 11 on my brain and I'm still in verse 10. But he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Eleazar means God is my help. How does one man stand his ground when all other men melt away? He freezes to the word of God. He's always repenting. He's always concerned with holiness. He's always examining his life against the word. It's not a if you fast. It is a when you fast. Because to him, the only thing that would help him in his life is his ability to cling to that sword that is the word of God. You know, the pillars of Judaism were prayer, fasting, and charity. These men, 
The first one's name, Council of God, Jasheb, symbolizes prayer. The second one, Eleazar, God is my help, who stood his ground. It symbolizes the kind of repentance that accompanies fasting. When all others lost their mind, he clung to the word. Now for the LSU fans. Next to him was Shammah, son of an Aggie. The Ahorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a, (laughs) I can't even say this, field full of lentils. That's beans. Israel's troops fled from them, but Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Why did he defend the beans? Well, they were his to defend. They were the food of the people. What is your life fighting for? Because Shama, his life was fighting to make sure that his brothers and sisters got what they needed to eat. If that's not alms to the poor, I don't know what is. Do you know what Shama's name means? All astonishment and desolation. It's just like when Tony Stark let that Jericho missile go, man. When you get your heart right to where you care more about your fellow man than about your own life, it is devastating to the enemy. That's the weapon you only have to fire once. You truly have a selfless act on someone else's behalf. You have shown them Jesus without saying a word. It is awe-inspiring. Did I tell you I love our missions team? So they carried groceries through the knee-deep mud. They knocked on doors. They prayed for the sick. And they came back without any groceries. Do you think those people are sitting over there going, American Christians are such jerks, we hate them? Do you think those people are sitting over there going, God never cared about me? Or do you think maybe they are in awe Maybe everything the devil has worked to build in their life is being laid desolate simply because somebody sacrificed on their behalf. You want a life that is off the chain? What if we did what these men do? What if we went up against unbelievable odds because we had heard the counsel of God in prayer? What if we clung to the Word of God in repentance and fasting when everybody else ran away. What if we cared so much about our fellow man that we didn't care about our lives at all? Would that cause awe and desolation? That'd be a life that's off the chain, friends. Do you want to live within the normal boundaries of humanity or do you want to go further and do more? Proverbs seventeen seventeen is a truth that needs to be told. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born in adversity. Why do we need there to be a cost in the sacrifice? Because when you endure adversity together, it bonds you together. I watched Brother Treister walk all over little concrete walls that he thought he might fall off of. And when we stood up on, they had a certain kind of crumbling nature. We tried to set a lead anchor in it, and it went through the wall. You hit one with a hammer, and the little cinder block that's in disintegrated. I'm not even sure it was concrete. It might have been flower painted to look like concrete. 
And after you work with a brother for 12 or 14 hours in the rain and you watch that he doesn't let up, he keeps his praise up, you watch how that works, and all of a sudden there's an admiration that begins to grow. Brothers are born in adversity. Well, that's two men. What happens when you stand by Jesus in his trials? Oh, you become brothers. Didn't he say that in the gospel of Luke? In Luke 22, 28 through 29, he says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me. Who does he confer the kingdom on? Those who stood with him in his Where are you standing, friends? Free from trials or in the trials that are God-appointed? See, when we stand with Him, He's not ashamed to call us brothers. In Hebrews 2, starting in verse 11, look at the way this works. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers, when we are born in adversity together because his trials are our trials, it's off the chain. It makes you heavenly. When you don't have to sacrifice, you choose to sacrifice. Don't we say this about Jesus all the time? Nobody took his life from him. He offered it up. How many of you have said that? And you did so rightly. So will somebody have to take yours or are you offering it up? You want to be like Jesus or not? Oh, we want to be like Jesus, but you fight to protect your life. I'm saying let's give it away. I'm saying it'd be off the chain out of this world just to do what the Word of God says. It's not chained. It's us who has the problem. What do we got to do to start cutting some of those? Second Peter's got an interesting thing to say about it. He talks about entanglements. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of this world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off in the end than they were in the beginning. I would say entangled is much like being chained. If we know who the Lord is and we love Him, but chains are pulling on us so that we're more like the world than we are like Him. That's not off the chain. It's very much on it. That's not supernatural. It's very natural. That's not freedom. It's actually slavery no matter what we call it. I believe in the chain-breaking power of the living God. You know, we just celebrated Christmas. At least some did. About Christmas today. What does Luke one thirty seven say? This is a good Christmas scripture. For nothing is impossible with God. Who said it and who'd they say it to? An angel said it to a little virgin who was tasked with bringing the Messiah into the world. What did it cost her? What did she dream of becoming? What did it cost her? See? The Lord is interested in using those who are completely sold out for Him, who He has overshadowed with Himself. Saints, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to tell you, you can get rid of chains. When you walk, you ought not rattle. Only snakes do that. 
You ought to be able to walk and float in the Spirit. You ought to be able to hear from God, cast aside the chains of fear, and do what He says to do. And then let me tell you another secret. It's okay to feel good about it. I do. I love serving the Lord. I am addicted to one high and one high only, and that is the feeling that the Father approves of my life. And I'll do any, I'm worse than any addict in this room today. I will steal from the devil. I will do whatever, I'll go to war. I will do whatever it takes to have that approval from my Father. I'm addicted to it. And you know what? It's off the chain. It is so good that I don't have enough hours to tell you about. But I can tell you what started in the living room at 18 years old, at 38, because I'm still 38, has not grown less exciting. It's grown more exciting. Come on, say it out loud. That's off the chain. Let's stand to our feet.